So this morning I'd like to continue with the uh, exploration of the theme of self and not self. No self, true self, authentic self. Who is the self? What is the self? And uh, this very powerful area of our practice that is related to one of the core teachings of the Buddha and very much to uh, very much becomes a way to go very deeply into our practice. So my intention is uh, today to give a brief review of what we did last time and then to cover some further territory by looking at the main ways that self appears in our experience. My intention is in doing so to give us a little more of a map that can help us to look more carefully at the, of how the construction of self appears. It really will complement what we explored last time. And I'll again give uh, practices which we can take home, which we can, can really work with during the week. And particularly what I'll be doing is with each, I'll be, give, I'll be identifying three general main forms that the self appears in. And we can be on the lookout for them. <laughs> I won't ask who's going to be on the lookout. <laughs> That's something that we'll explore. So to, to review some of what we looked at last time, to talk about the self and not self is to enter into a considerable amount of paradox and potentially a significant amount of confusion. The question of what the H did the Buddha mean about (laughs) not-self is one of the basic questions that we get continually in this role of being a teacher. And you may have heard, gone to a retreat and heard the teaching of not-self and said, I'll look into that later. (laughs) The meditation's great. You know, mindfulness, developing stability and peacefulness is wonderful, and, and that I will, I will look into later. And I, I, don't quite, I don't quite get it, and I'm not sure if it matters. And it is, it is a confusing area. I, I just got an email a few days ago from someone whom I know, know well, who's actually a Buddhist practitioner, and he is a psychologist, and he, in his email, he, he, he um, said he is conducting an ongoing group that will look into, let me see if I I have it here, that says we will try to develop the three main aspects of our being. Uh, We live in three worlds. We live in the world of spirit, the world of soul, and the world world of ego. And we have to develop well in each of them. So again, when we actually look at that, it can actually make some sense. But the language gets very confusing. And as I mentioned last time, the concept of self or ego is used in all sorts of different ways. Some of you are psychologists and know that ego is often used as a, as a neutral term, just meaning kind of the coordinating functions of experience, you know, what helps kind of unify and guide and control experience and is taken to be completely necessary for um, being sane, basically, and, and having coherence in one's life. And at other times, ego is used to mean self-centeredness. So the language gets confusing, and people can get very uh, bothered. You know, I, I also heard a few days ago, um, some friends were saying we're at a retreat, and there was a very young man, uh, well, 20 years old, uh, and he went to the retreat, he meditated, I think it was his first retreat, and he was, he heard the teachings about not-self, and he got very angry. He got very angry. He said, he said, um, he said, if there's no self, why should I stay at the retreat? And you can, this, this has a humorous aspect, but it's actually very poignant. Uh, he said, there's no self, and he actually, um, 
left the retreat and he actually quit school. He was very taken by this teaching and it just led him to a sense almost of meaninglessness, which is, which is a, kind of a strong version of a certain confusion about this. It is a confusion. I, don't, I wish that he had spoken probably to the teacher more because he probably just worked out his confusion privately. And, and left, but it kind of gives you an example of how this teaching can be quite um, misunderstood and can lead to a certain um, extreme attitude. Um, it reminds me of the Zen story, which, you know, uh, which goes like this. Uh, one of uh, uh, a Zen student was thinking that he really was understanding the teaching of not-self and he, his teacher sensed that he was uh, not fully mature in his understanding, which is pretty much what Zen teachers do all the time. They sense <laughs> <laughs> that there's a lack of full understanding and they use chaotic and often um, intense methods to let the student know that. And so this, this student was saying, there's no self, there's no self, and there's no self. And the teacher sensed that it was at a conceptual level. And he started testing him by getting a, a, a pan and banging on his head. <laughs> and the student, this is a story, who knows whether it happened or not, <laughs> you know, banging on his head and saying, if there's no self, what does it matter if I bang you in the head? He said, stop banging me, stop banging me. He said, where's the self? <laughs> and so forth. So it, it is this... It is this, <laughs> it is this area of confusion. I think, and of course, the student understood and stopped talking the way he was talking. But um, he stopped talking. He stopped talking. started looking for Band-Aids. <laughs> so it's a confusing area. And it also can be confusing, as I mentioned last time, because the Buddha himself seemed to suggest that uh, the teaching of not-self wasn't somehow the full truth. You know, just as I mentioned last time, Jack Hornfield's teacher, Achan Cha, said, the teaching of no self is not true. Rather strong statement for a Buddhist teacher. <laughs> but then he said, and the next he said, the teaching of self is also not true. And the Buddha once had this uh, interchange, which I mentioned last time, where someone asked him, is there a self? And he stayed silent. And then the, the uh, questioner named Vachagata asked, is there a self? Or said, is there, is there no self? And he, said, and he stayed silent as well. So he stayed silent both for the question, is there a self and is there no self? And he was later questioned by his attendant, Ananda, why did you do that? And he said, if I had said there is a self, he would have fallen into one extreme, that of having a fixed view of an eternal self, of an independent self. If I had given the other answer, he would have fallen into the other extreme. And it points, I think, in a way that the resolution of these issues is not on the conceptual level. Uh, that the silence, in a sense, we could interpret that as pointing towards a more experiential resolution of the issue. And that's really what I'm encouraging us to do, is to really look and experience, see where the self arises, and see, uh, see in some sense, how the resolution of the question of self and not-self occurs as we explore and practice more deeply. Because on a conceptual level, our language is organized into <coughs> polarities and dichotomies. And when we try to, essentially, when we try to say one side of a dichotomy is true, we're actually implicitly saying that the other side is true because the one side wouldn't exist without the other side. One of the great philosophers of Buddhism took that insight to a very high level. He, he basically showed how anyone who makes any dogmatic claim at all is going to get caught in contradictions. It's the way that the United States, in taking the Soviet Union as, a, as its opponent, needed them. 
the way that the United States and Osama or George Bush and Osama bin Laden need each other. If one of them would suddenly die or disappear, there would be a big crisis, just like there was a big crisis for the United States after the Soviet Union collapsed. We have to have an enemy. Who's going to be our enemy? We don't, we don't, they're, they're this, anyway, I'm not going to go so far into that, that line of analysis, but do you get this, do you, but the, the, the and, and that insight is, is a deep one. It's the way that actually concepts come in systems which are organized by duality. And so we can't really resolve a choice between one of two polarities conceptually because it always comes as a system. We can unpack that later, maybe. That's, 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 I don't know, did some of you get that? It's pretty, it's, it's pretty interesting. So it's really, and I could, we could have a whole talk or several on that very theme, but the, the point is more to look experientially for the resolution of this, and if you try to think it out, it can get convoluted. And so we looked last time, and we saw how in fact, one way, one main way of resolving all the confusion and the paradoxes historically has been to distinguish between two levels at which we can look. One of them which we might call a more conventional or relative level and the other a more absolute or ultimate level. The conventional or relative level is the level of language and concepts and on that level we talk about self, the Buddha, talked about individuals, gave them names, talked about ordinary objects and so forth, and we need to do that to kind of navigate in the world. The problem comes when we sort of buy into that conventional way of using concepts and take that to be ultimate, for we take that to be really, really real, fundamentally real. A lot of what our practice is comes to be to see how concepts are kind of overlays on experience which don't relate directly don't, don't, as it were, map on fully onto experience. They're kind of simplifications for the purposes of getting about in the world. And so, you know, we use the word hand and wrist and arm. But these are very general terms. Where does the hand end and the wrist begin? Now, we can try to come up with a definition, but generally speaking, we just use them roughly, don't we? We, you know, we, if, someone's, if someone says, shake hands with me, we don't give the person the wrist. Or that could be maybe a secret code for a club or something. But, but uh, and the, you know, where does the arm begin? How many hairs do you have to have before you're bald, before you're not bald? No one is worried about being precise about these things. But what it points to is that the concepts that we use are rough, approximate, not precise. They're used for navigating about the world. And the argument is that the self is quite similar. That we can use the sense of self in this relative conventional way, but when we actually look closely at experience, we don't find something that really looks like self. And so last time I talked about the main way that the Buddha taught about uh, what we find when we look at experience and that was this teaching of the five aggregates or the five skandhas where he said when we actually look deeply at experience, closely at experience, we find we might say, he said, five kinds of stuff, five kinds of, five kinds of experience. He said we find uh, something like physical forms connected with the senses. We find we, we, we can be aware of what seems to have a physical manifestation. <coughs> Uh, coming through the sense of touch and sight and hearing and taste and so forth, that that's a whole realm of experience. We can also have the second area, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, the sense of feeling tone. We could say we have, the experience can have sometimes we might, what we might call a kind of evaluative aspect where, where there's a sense of I like this, I don't like this, or this is, this is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral was the second area. The third area was the area of perception, which has to do with recognizing an object. And last time I gave some stories, which I really enjoyed doing, about how perception, in a sense, goes beyond the raw data. 
you know, that when we, when we actually, and one of the interesting explorations can be, can we look at experience and see how our perception of something often brings in all sorts of assumptions. The example I gave last time was that of being caught in traffic trying to get here, seeing a driver instead of waiting on a long line coming from the East Bay, going on to Sir Francis Drake, went in the fast lane and cut in right at the end. Perception arises in my mind. That is a greedy driver <laughs> or something like that or, or I, you know, my mind is working like that or actually what happens is I see the driver and then my mind goes to the idea of greed or then I say, oh, well, maybe there's an emergency. Fat chance of that, but... But we don't know. But it actually is very helpful. But see, that's where we, we actually study perception and we see how perception very quickly builds into something else. And that's one of the great benefits of meditation is that we can actually be aware of the process. Because when we're not aware, we get right locked into the assumptions. We go there right away. You know, someone at work says something and we go right into, I'm not understood. You know, I'm going to quit this job. What's the job market like? Time for a vacation. Oh, a retreat. <laughs> you know, and we, we, know how the, we know how the mind works. And so perception is the third aspect. And it's also something quite linked with memory. And we looked at last time, we told a story of how uh, a man who had, had not, never seen in his life had an operation and looked out at the world and he did not see the world we see. Because, he had, because the world of seeing fixed forms, discrete objects and recognizing them is not a given an experience. It's something that we, as it were, train for as we get older very dependent on culture. Different cultures do it different ways. And yet we kind of assume that there's this objective reality right out there that corresponds to how we see. When we look carefully at experience, with that idea tends to break down. So there's perception, there are thoughts and emotions, the fourth form, volitional formations, and there is uh, consciousness. And so the teaching of the Buddha is when we look closely at experience, we don't find a self. The self, he said, represents a kind of grasping onto experience. A way, and that's really the critique of the concept of self, that it represents a going beyond the simplicity of experience and attaching to some segment of experience and saying, this is me, this is my thought, you know, that this is my view, you know, this is what I think, I'm right. It's me who's right. You're wrong. And that the idea is that that is both an uh, addition to experience and that it all often leads to suffering because it sets us up to not see reality clearly as impermanent, changing, and devoid of a fixed self. So we create a kind of fiction of a self and we set ourselves up that this self needs to then control things, to organize experience, to get good pleasant experiences and avoid negative ones. And it sets us up in a way to control the world and control others. And that's really the, the core uh, criticism of the concept of self, both that it's fictitious and that it leads to suffering. And we're really invited to explore that. And again, it goes against all of our conditioning. Because we're kind of raised in a way to see, to think, that the main organizing principle of experience is me here, the world there. I have to manipulate things to be happy. That's how we're conditioned to organize it. So this is, the Buddha said his teaching went against the grain went against things. And a lot of what we do in meditation practice is that we explore the, the sense of self. We, try, we learn how better to be with direct experience. We see where the self arises, as we did in the guided meditation. 
And in doing so, we sort things out. Now, one last comment, and then I want to bring in some new material. What one of the kind of experiences that I pointed to last time that we that we shared. Oh, it's just a little, oh, a yeah. little little one came by. Yeah. Uh, one of the experiences that we looked at last time that that actually gives us a sense. I think it's an it's an experience that we've all had that gives us a sense of where this teaching is pointing is the experience that we often have in some of our most wonderful moments of having no self-consciousness, no sense of separation, and just being highly present. And I gave examples. For example, I gave examples from sports, from music. It could be, an, it could be a sense of love, connection, friendship. So I gave, for example, uh, uh, some examples from sports. And I brought in some quotations from one of my favorite books from a friend called Playing in the Zone, Exploring the Spiritual Dimension of Sports. You wouldn't think it, would you? <laughs> some of you know. Some of you wouldn't, but it has to do with, and this is, uh, this is about being, being in the zone, is where people in sports go into deep states of concentration, relaxation, and maximum expression of their gifts, their abilities, but there is typically no sense of separate self and no self-consciousness, no self-image. And once that arises, then the performance deteriorates. So here's, I'll just read something from, um, this is from a British golfer named Tony Jacklin. When I'm in the state, this cocoon of concentration, I'm being fully in the present, not moving out of it. I'm aware of every inch of my swing. I'm absolutely engaged, involved in what I'm doing at that particular moment. That's the important thing. That's the difficult state to arrive at. It comes and it goes. And the pure fact that you go out on the first tee of a tournament and say, I must concentrate today, is no good. It won't work. It already has to be there. And this is, the, uh, this is from the, I think, the Brazilian uh, soccer player, Pele, some of you know. This is what he said. He talked of experiencing a strange calmness. It was a type of euphoria. I felt I could run all day without tiring, that I could dribble through any of their team or all of them, that I could almost pass through them physically. I felt I could not be hurt. It was a very strange feeling. Perhaps it was merely confidence, but I have felt confident many times without that strange feeling of invincibility. So some sense, and we, we experience it if, sometimes if we're creative. You know, musicians talk about that, uh, you know, particularly improvisers. Um, but I think all kinds of musicians, you know, jazz musicians, if they're really in the flow, there's a sense of a team connection, and there's some, there's not a sense of self. And I think we experience this with people we're close to, and we, we, we explored that some last time. And I, to, to me, this is the everyday experience that suggests, I think, where this practice is going, towards a kind of fullness where, and, and what the Buddhist practice does, what the spiritual practice does, it adds a lot of awareness and mindfulness of how we actually get caught or stuck. That I think for the long-term stabilization of that quality, because wouldn't it be nice to live like that all the time? That's really what we're looking at. And what the practice does here is it points to the way that actually we can move in that direction, but in a sense we have to deconstruct some of the usual structures of self. Deconstruct and transform them. That's the purpose of meditation, long-term practice, all sorts of other practices. That's where it goes, I think. And I'll, maybe I'll just read one other passage. Let's see, maybe two more, because I'd like them. This is from, this is from the Taoist tradition, Chuang Tzu. He talked about this quality in the woodcarver. King, the master carver, made a bell stand of precious wood. When it was finished, all who saw it were astounded. They said it must be the work of spirits. The Prince of Lu said to the master carver, what is your secret? And he talks about a kind of emptying out of self that was done as, an, as a woodcarver. King replied, I am only a workman. I have no secret. There is only this. When I began to think about the work you commanded, I guarded my spirit, did not expend it on trifles that were not to the point. Concentration, stabilizing. 
I fasted in order to set my heart at rest, simplifying needs, kind of simple living to try to get to the basics. I fasted in order to set my heart at rest. After three days fasting, I had forgotten gain and success. After five days, I had forgotten praise or criticism, some of the usual aspects that hook our our sense of self. After seven days, I had forgotten my body with all its limbs. (laughs) By this time, all thought of your highness and of the court had faded away. All that might distract me from the work had vanished. I was collected in the single thought of the bell stand. Then I went to the forest to see the trees in their own natural state, When the right tree appeared before my eyes, the bell stand also appeared in it, clearly beyond doubt. All I had to do was to put forth my hand and begin. If I had not met this particular tree, there would have been no bell stand at all. What happened? My own collected thought encountered the hidden potential in the wood. From this live encounter came the work which you ascribe to the spirits. So I think we move in that direction. You can see in his description what he was doing over, what, a week or so. It's like a condensation of a lot of what we do, ethical practices, concentration, and so forth, which are part of this path. Now it's helpful, and this is what I want to talk about for the rest of the time, it's helpful to actually identify the main ways in which self appears. And this, this is... Um, this is a large topic, and I may just start. I may just begin with it, and maybe continue next time. But I wanted to identify three main ways that the self appears in our experience, and they're interrelated. And talk a little bit about each of them, and invite us to look for these forms of self as they appear. And some of us have been doing that, just looking for where does the strong sense of self appear. The first is what I would call certain kinds of Uh, psychological fixations. They may be related to wounds or developmental challenges that we've had, sometimes trauma. And there are certain ways that we are chronically fixated. It might be that, you know, know, maybe I'll get into that. I'll say more a little bit later. The second has to do with the way that social forces influence our sense of self through roles, through the kind of internalization that we make of what the society offers us. Could be, for example, that we internalize ourselves as a man or a woman or a person of this or that quality, an old person, a young person. There's a tremendous amount of social conditioning that we uh, internalize that forms a sense of self. And the third area is the ways that we separate ourselves from others, the way that there's a self-other split. And these are interrelated, as you could tell, but it's helpful to identify those three forms and look for them specifically. So let me say a little bit about those three. Each of them could be talked about at great length, you know, probably for a month each. <laughs> but let me, let me be brief on this. And remembering that the core issue that the Buddha is looking towards is to see where is there some kind of a chronic grasping or chronic aversion towards some element of our experience. And that's really going to be the key which unlocks us, because these are really three main forms that a kind of chronic grasping occurs. So the first is, the first area has to do with how in each of our experience, there's a kind of fixation that develops. Generally speaking, and this is incorporating more of Western psychology, that it develops more or less out of our early childhood. You know, and there may be other forms that, if you take a more Buddhist view that come from past lives and so forth, but certainly we can see that there are certain form certain ways that we get fixated and basically we get wounded and because of those wounds we want to protect ourselves and we form defenses and armor that takes the form of a self that makes us think this is myself you know I am and a lot of it's quite unconscious so one way of summarizing the basic 
uh, and this is a more Western insight into how this develops, is, is quite a simple idea. It's that when we are young, something happens that, and it can happen at different developmental stages, you know, from being very young to, you know, being, you know, being an infant to being early young child or, or being, you know, a little older child and so forth. They're different, as it were, de- developmental tests. And a lot of the Western psychologists have tried to identify, okay, here are the, here is what happens between zero and two. Here's what happens between two and four, or four and six, and so forth. But the basic idea is that there's some way that um, that we develop a kind that some that some part of experience becomes quite painful. It might be that our parents are not present for us, and we get scared and angry. Maybe that we have a sense that that there is not uh, support for me. We have a sense, and we, and we, on the basis of that painful experience as a child, we develop tremendous fear for repeating that experience. And, and thus we develop all kinds of defenses that try to ward off any repetition of that experience. All of this is happening pretty unconsciously. And a kind of a, kind of a we might say, a kind of a... Um, an armor develops, a kind of a persona, a mask. So if I have, if I was and has felt abandoned as a child, when I'm an adult and I'm in a relationship and my partner, let's say, wants to go away for the weekend and leave me at home, those issues might come right to the fore even though I'm 40 years old. And there's, and, and, there, and we can think of other kinds of patterns that develop from that. It could be a variety of issues. It could be that I feel that, you know, as a child I was somewhat wild and expressive and this made my parents very uncomfortable, right? And so they basically said, don't do that. And I learned that if I was going to be wild and expressive, I would not get love. And so I learned to self-censor myself so I'm not that way because I think I won't get love that way. And so basically what happens there is I develop then a lot of defenses in myself to avoid going into that territory of wildness and expressiveness because I'm fearful that if I'm like that, people won't like me because I had that, that kind of archetypal experience as a child. And we could imagine a lot of different scenarios. There are a lot of different patterns. And so what this sets up is a kind of systematic fixation around a wound, we might say. And it's a deep issue, you know, and to work with that, we often need to do specialized work, psychological work. Meditation can be very helpful in certain ways, but in some of those kind of patterns, we need need to do focused work just to get clear of it, because a lot of it's happening pretty unconsciously. And we all typically have some variety of that. And so what the way we can actually notice this, we basically can notice a lot of these things to notice where we have some kind of unconscious compulsive reaction. You know, and many of us are involved with you know, deeper reflection into the nature of our conditioning, and we will notice that kind of, kind of pattern. The practices that we do for that can take some time. You know, they can, we can use mindfulness practice, and some of you may want to just notice, we start noticing, what are my chronic patterns of reactivity? I think using mindfulness practice, we, in a sense, become connoisseurs of our own patterns of reactivity. And we study them. We study them at depth. We start to bring those kind of patterns out into the open. That's really where the transformative work occurs. But it's very helpful to think that there are these kind of, we each have these chronic patterns where we're stuck or frozen. Typically, when our direct experience was either too hard to handle, too much for us, too painful, we didn't have the resources or the support, or some part of ourself was censored. We had to give up ourselves in order, we thought, to survive. And we all, we all have some version of that. Interesting that were the conditions ideal, 
there would just be the experience happening without the addition of self. There would just be the experience of that expressiveness, that aliveness. But what happens is when it gets censored or when things get, when, when, a, when we need, feel like I can't deal with that pain, because I, as a young child I don't have any support, no one's telling me how to be with that pain, my, you know, maybe my anger is being suppressed and so forth, then I have to, I can't be with direct experience. I have to add an overlay which eventually becomes a part of the self. So you see the, the, the long-term resolution is to learn how to go back and actually be present with that original experience directly. A lot of therapy would take one back there. Can, can you feel that? Can you resolve that? So it's interesting that that's actually connected with this basic teaching that if we're just with the direct experience, we can see where the self builds up. And I think that's true of these developmental uh, fixations, we might say. You following me? Pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So the second area I wanted to talk about is the area that comes connected with social conditioning. And there are a vast, there are vast number of ways that the social conditioning builds a form of self. One of the most obvious uh, is the kind, of, or the kind of roles that we take and the way we get fixated on the roles. You know, if I'm a teacher, you know, I might think I'm a teacher, that means I have to be perfect. You know, I shouldn't acknowledge my shortcomings because, and this is where it gets complicated, because as a teacher I get all sorts of projections from others and I have all sorts of my own stuff and it gets into this complicated mesh, right? <laughs> this is the nature of human relationships, <laughs> right? But, there, but if, I, if I fixate on, in a certain way on the concept of teacher, I build a self around the concept of teacher. And we can do that around all the different social roles we take. Uh, the roles we take in work, man or woman. You know, I, and basically we can again take it back to this notion of there is a experience and in some sense we overlay it. It may be that as a teacher I like when people say really good talk <laughs> or I really like that. And if I'm insecure about that I may try to say, oh, I have to have that experience all the time. You know, if I, if I say certain things about myself, they won't say that anymore. Right? So I better, better play it safe <laughs> right? or something like that. And it's basically, you can start to see how that sense of self is an overlay. That I can't just be with the experience as it is. You know, in the same way, you know, maybe someone identifies with appearance. We all do that to some extent. You know, I identify with how others see me as beautiful. I could also do it the opposite way. I could identify how people, how people project a sense of not being beautiful onto me. And I, I identify with that. That becomes my self-image, you know. And it's particularly, probably, particularly uh, poignant, I think, for many women who are projected on as beautiful, and then as they age, the projection is removed, right? And, and what happens to identity? if one's identified with that. So, how many are familiar with something like that? <laughs> okay. and, and so we, we identify in that way. Uh, one of, uh, there's a very powerful, I, I received a, a long essay from someone I was in a training with who is a young woman in her 20s who is blind. And she sent a, she sent a very interesting essay, which she's, she's in school at CIS, and she wrote a long essay about what she called projective identification, about how the projections that she felt as a blind woman, as a young blind woman. And I wanted to just read a little bit of this because it's quite powerful. So she speaks of individuals who are identified with subgroups of society whom its collective shadow is projected upon. Members of such groups are too scary and threatening for the general population to deal with, so therefore are disregarded, dehumanized, and ignored, invariably cast off from society where they live out the fear that others cannot handle. In, each, in this, each member of society is collectively distancing oneself from those parts of their own existence which they cannot tolerate. So in this case, it might be the, 
you know, the fear of someone who is blind. And she says this, um, Often when confronted with one's own insecurities, instead of facing them and all the work that such an act would uh, require, it is simply easier to inherently feel sorry for the person, essentially adopting a superior position and consequently diminishing the value of that person in the process. A disabled person becomes someone people feel is less than, inferior, helpless, defective, and or otherwise does not share the full human experience. In this process, a person with a disability is turned into a species that that one cannot readily relate to, and therefore is quite different from oneself. This enables a person to safely detach from the undesirable feelings towards oneself and displace them elsewhere. And so she talks out of her own experience. Just can you imagine, you know, and it's very poignant, just imagining how a very sensitive person feeling the projections that come upon her as a young blind woman. Oh, it must be so hard and so forth. Really, again, overlays, and she's saying a lot of it's actually to ward off what people are actually experiencing. And of course, the thing that she also talks about further is that she, as a disabled person, we could also see how this is done with all subgroups in society. You know, uh, that you know, African Americans are a certain way, or Latinos, Latinas are a certain way, or um, older people are a certain way, and so forth. That she's saying that the danger is for her that she gets those projections she internalizes them, they become who she thinks she is. And that it's a tremendous amount of work to actually work through that. And so that would be another very powerful way that a sense of self gets formed, through the internalization of the projections of the society. And, to, and we could, again, see that in all sorts of ways. Uh, and the practices that would help with that could be, again, a lot of reflection, Uh, self-examination. Ultimately, again, I think we're trying to take this back. Can I just experience what I'm experiencing as a person and watch where I go, uh, where I add something on? This is hard work because it takes really unpacking what have I internalized from the society. And that becomes, I think, a significant part of looking into the self. And the third area, which I want to talk about a little more briefly and finish, is the sense of the sense of separation that we have uh, with others and the world. It's that's that way that we, that we have, we tend to construct the world. So it's me here and the entire world out there <coughs> basically formed, the whole world basically formed to satisfy my needs. <laughs> and so we, this is the extreme form that everything almost becomes an object. I'm the only subject in the world. Everything else is an object. It's all there for me. You know, one of the, one of, everything becomes objectified. It has its, none of its own qualities. You know, kind of the extreme example that I saw was in a, one, of, one of my uh, favorite films, a film called Repo Man. Anyone see? <laughs> Anyone remember Repo Man? And there's this great scene where I think it's Emilio Estevez is a, uh, kind of a teenage slacker who becomes a repo. Repo man means repossession man, someone who is in charge of getting cars where the people haven't paid their, paid their monthly installments and repossessing them. So it's a pretty inherently undesirable job. And he, so he's in this situation where he, he's basically just got fired from his job. He goes home. I, I won't get into the details. <laughs> There's some very funny scenes there. But he basically goes home. His parents are, are actually sitting there watching a TV evangelist while smoking marijuana. <laughs> and there's no food for him. And he goes to the cupboard and he reaches in there. There's just a can that says food. <laughs> <laughs> he, re- he, 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 you know, he takes the top off of the can, sticks a fork in, and says, yum. And so for me, this was really signifying the way that everything becomes objectified, has no qualities of its own, you know, instead of, you know, carrot or celery, it just becomes food. And so, anyway, there's a little bit of an <laughs> indirect example, but, but the world gets objectified. We separate ourselves, and this takes all sorts of forms. It can take the way that we feel separate from the world, the way that we feel alone, 
It can be the sense of self that we have is in discussions where we think, I'm right, you're wrong, which is a very basic way that we relate to, <laughs> relate to discussion. Um, and, and so the, the practice here is really just looking at that, looking more carefully. When do I find myself in a radically separate stance, either towards the world or towards another person? And of course, there are a lot of practices that can help work with that. We can be mindful. We can always work with mindfulness practice. We can do heart practices that connect us more. There are some other practices which I may bring in next time in which we actually learn to actually give attention to the world. You know, so we can actually, just the very act of being attentive to a tree starts to shift that sense of separation. Because a lot of it is staying in this instrumental stance where it's just for me. And anything which takes us out of that is going to do the work. But it's also, it's also to see, can I notice the sense of self which is there when I really feel separate? And a lot of, a lot of the sense of separation is norm, feels normal. So we have to really look into that and, and really see, see how that is. So I think I will stop, stop there and again point to the fact that this is deep material. It, takes, uh, it really takes work to, to start looking at self. It's very possible to do. It's extremely exciting because to, to see that we've lived a certain way and that to see that it's both fictitious and connected with suffering can really give us energy to look more deeply. And some of the senses of self and concept can fall away fairly quickly. But it becomes this very amazing journey to look more deeply, to see things. And it's really, that's really the invitation, I think, that the Buddha gives and that we all are giving, to look more deeply, to see, to question our normal assumptions. And so I offer those practices, some of which I've mentioned, to look more carefully at those three forms of self around what we might call the fixations or the wounds first. Secondly, the way that we form a sense of self based on social conditioning. And thirdly, the way that we form an opposition with another person, with uh, objects in the world. So I'll stop there and invite any reflections or questions. Thank you for, thank you for attending. It's, this is, this is uh, complicated material, isn't it? It's tricky, but it's, uh, it's fascinating also. Thank you. Please. Um, that part totally, now, if I got this right, and I may not have, seems to say that non-self is, is, yeah. awareness. Mm-hmm. Does that work for you? Does that fit into yeah. what you uh, see? Yeah, maybe the, the question is, uh, Eckhart Tolle, who's, uh, whose teachings are been much more widely known than six months ago <laughs> because of Oprah Winfrey, for those who don't know. I haven't, seen them. I haven't seen them myself, but he says that the sense of not-self is linked with awareness. And that's, I think, you know, I think it's something I may explore next time. I think there are two main directions that, the, that, that this exploration can go. One is towards really understanding the sense of interdependence uh, and seeing the way that the self is part of a, uh, a flow, uh, a set of relationships. So there's not so much a separate self, but there's a sense of connection and a vast web. So we come to see the world when we look out there. We don't see me here, you there, but we see this vast web of interrelating uh, energies with porous boundaries, you know, with boundaries that are there, but they're not fixed. So we, that's, one, that's one direction for the practice. So we, could, we do that sometimes when we explore uh, close relationships. You know, there's a sense of interdependence and relationship and connection. And that becomes one way to experience, a, you know, a lack of a sense of a fixed self through a sense of interdependence, you know, being in the natural world. Another way is through awareness. It's that we, in a sense, can um, 
Mm, how, how do I go, go there? We can have a sense that, uh, uh, well, there are a few ways to go there. One is to actually, as we get more concentrated, we can start noticing how self appears and noticing um, where fixation appears. And as we release those fixations, everything becomes, in a sense, a play of awareness that we can, we can have... Um, we can see that every, all of our experience... So maybe it's one... If I, would, if I would simplify it, I would say one direction to work with not-self is to go more outward, and one, the other way is to go more inward. Outward goes towards in- interdependence. Going more inward lets us see that all of our experience is unfolding in the realm of awareness. And, and there's a way in which we can uh, come to hold everything in awareness so that all of the phenomena are occurring and there's not necessarily any fixed object or self, but everything is just phenomena appearing within experience. I don't know if that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that requires a little more unpacking next week because I, I know that I think there might be a f- more felicitous way to, to, to say that. But that's that is, and so some meditation practices, like some people here, did some of the Tibetan practices called zogchen. That's the strategy of zogchen. Zogchen takes us to look deeply at the very nature of awareness and see, and in a sense, identify how all of experience is unfolding in this vast space of awareness. And we, in a sense, we take refuge there, and that becomes the most basic reality. Uh, I'll say more next week. I could say some more things, but I think maybe that's a starting point, because it's, it's an advanced teaching. It's a difficult teaching. Yeah. Please, yeah. I think it's possible to have, uh, definitely to have fewer fixations. I think an ideal upbringing would, you know, I think we know that there, there are vast differences between how parenting occurs as well as just the conditions of life, you know, because it's not just the parenting. It could be if one grows up in a war zone, there are going to be certain very intense experiences which the parents may be incapable of protecting one from. So it's not just parenting. Uh, it's, it's the world situations. And, you know, and uh, I think it's possible to have a minimum of fixations. But uh, everyone I know <laughs> has, has some. And some of it's just cultural blindness. You know, it's not, it's not again, it, there can be incredibly well-intentioned parents doing the best that they can with Dr. Spock and all that stuff, but, but there, there just are ways that we have areas of cultural blindness, such as, you know, like for in our society, um, we've tended in Western society for the last few hundred years to value the mind over the body. And so some of the experiences of the body just start to become part of the unconscious area. That's, you know. Another sort of aspect of my question would be evolutionarily speaking. I mean, I yeah. wonder if there's some survival mechanism to that kind of um, developing those kind of fixations in some way. I mean, that it's mostly harmful to us, but that maybe it has some you know, generalization about if something bad happening to you, maybe the, if you generalize it, maybe it keeps Yeah, somewhere. yeah, yeah, because it's, it's really, it's a lot of it is response to the conditions. You know, if we, if, I don't know, if we've grown up with uh, saber-toothed tigers running around, and it may be harder just to say, let me just rest in awareness <laughs> and experience all sensations um, openly and so forth and just sit there. Although actually, in, I know there are biographies of teachers in Thailand who did exactly that. They had advanced meditators sit in front of tiger caves and actually watch their fear. But that's, that's another issue. But yeah, I think, <laughs> but, 
but I think that there, I think that there are, you know, in given the conditions, I think that there are, a lot of these are understandable. I'm not saying that they're bad or they shouldn't be there. They do come out of a certain logic of survival. All of this is about sur- a certain survival, and so it's, um, and so I think it, it is. You know, I'm thinking out loud now, but I think it is related to develop what we might call a culture of awakening. You know, where the conditions are different, which is which I think is also could be interpreted uh, uh, evolutionarily, you know, that, that it becomes kind of a vision for us. Can we develop a culture of awakening where the conditions are different? You know, and there are a lot of threats to even, you know, keeping the way things are now, but that can be a vision that can be very powerful and inspiring. Yeah. Maybe last one. Let's see. Yeah. Well, it just it triggers both your comment about mind and body and yeah. that question the work of Peter Levine, and I think his book is actually called Awakening the Tiger. Yeah, yeah. But he does so much work with looking at how animals respond physically and physiologically to trauma. Yeah. And I think sort of mainstream culture, we've gotten to the point of thinking so much in our heads that we don't even take into account what happens in our bodies and what happens physiologically. Yeah, yeah. Events. not just getting physically wounded, but everything else it sets up. I, yeah. I just love his work. Yeah. Great. People, the question is about the work of Peter Levine, who has uh, training programs called Somatic Experiencing, which are uh, offered in the Bay Area every, typically every year. It's, it's like, I think uh, one can do a year or two years or three years. And I've, I haven't done it, but I've had a lot of friends who have, and I think quite well of it. And, I think one of the points is that um, some of these, what I'm calling fixations or knots, are quite deep. But we're blessed at this time to have a lot of methods to unpack them. So sometimes, you know, that I guess the point is sometimes that sense of self is we shouldn't, I think we should really be with it in a gentle way because sometimes it's just there because we had very harsh experiences in the past. What you're adding to that point, though, is that it's workable. And that actually, you know, actually in terms of uh, developing in meditation, it's, it's uh, the case that sometimes people have to address some of those fixated places quite directly before they can go deeply into just that opening to experience, which makes sense because if opening to experience is connected with past memories that are fearful and involve pain, when one goes into deep meditation, that would typically come up some. And so to really keep on going deeper, sometimes we have to do that sustained work where the self gets fixated in order to open more deeply. And the Levine work and others give a lot of very skillful ways to do that, actually in some sense, in some cases, quite rapidly, quite quickly. It doesn't have to take, you know, 30 years of therapy or something. Yeah, so it's a fascinating area. What I'll invite us to do is to continue with the practices, and we can send an email out midweek, <laughs> to continue with the practices uh, and, and get a sense of where your own level of inquiry is. It might be enough just to keep on looking for where a thick sense of self develops. That was the invitation last time, to do that in formal meditation, just to see where does the self get coagulated. And if you want to then add looking particularly and trying to notice, okay, it's one of these three forms, the form of some kind of uh, fixation around, perhaps around a wound or something, a developmental uh, challenge, some area that was hard, secondly, the uh, social conditioning, and thirdly, that sense of opposition. Look more carefully at that and try to notice, and we start to see more clearly the patterns which emerge. This is how that transformation of the sense of self happens by really noticing more carefully and do a lot of metta, a lot of the heart practices. So let's, let's just sit for about 30 seconds to finish. Just being present with whatever was helpful from the morning and your intentions for the next week.
knowing that we do this work not just for ourselves but for others, we offer the benefits of the exploration, the sincere interest in developing further in wisdom and compassion. We offer the fruits out beyond the boundaries of this building and of Spirit Rock out into the world for the benefit and the healing and the freedom of all beings. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention to all details.